Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, please. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, it'll be, uh, it'll be fun in the next couple of weeks. We actually have a, a couple of different guest preachers coming in next week. Uh, Jesse Doughty is going to be here uh, bringing us a message. And so if you have ever had the, the blessing of hearing Jesse preach, um, uh, come back. And if you haven't, uh, come because Jesse is, is a great guy, great preacher, great message. And so I'm excited for that. And then on January 5th, uh, there's going to be a gentleman named Mike Hill who's going to be here preaching. He is a Minnesota State Patrol officer, but yet he has a unique uh, interest in ministry. And so he is, uh, he is a member of First Baptist Church in Malacca, and he is going to be bringing us a message on January 5th. And so I'm very, very excited uh, about that. And so, um, and as for today, we're getting back into some Christmas texts. We've been in Genesis now for uh, quite a while, and today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1 specifically verses 46 through 55, going to be looking at something called the, the Magnificat in Latin, and we'll talk about that a little bit as we go through here. But why don't we go uh, to the Lord in prayer, and then we can see what he has for us. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you that uh, Christ Jesus, uh, as the eternal Son of God, took on flesh became one of us, Lord, who has experienced life in its fullness, whether it be the joys or the sorrows, and that he can meet us wherever we are. And so, Father, I pray that, uh, that here, Lord, we would be encouraged to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, that we would be encouraged to trust in him and to live for him. And so, Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that, uh, that you would do that work in our hearts this morning, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, the darkest day of the year uh, actually just came uh, yesterday and into uh, sort of today as well, and I looked up, well, thank you, yes. Were you pointing at someone that, oh, okay, all right. So, uh, you know, I looked up how much daylight we actually get today, and uh, we get a whopping eight hours and 46 minutes of daylight today. Uh, that is, uh, hey, that's doing, that's doing pretty good. It could be a whole lot worse than that. I looked up in Helsinki, Finland, and uh, our sunrise is at 7.48 this morning and, and sets at 4.34. And in Helsinki, Finland, the sun didn't rise until 9.24 this morning, and it will set at 3.13, giving them only five hours and 49 minutes of sunlight uh, today. And if you think that that is something, try being an elf on the North Pole in this season because they don't get any sunlight at all. There's no sunlight that they're going to see at all this time of year. You know, life is incredibly important to having a quality of life. Uh, there has been research to show that there is a, a link between lack of exposure to light and, uh, and the development of prostate and breast cancer, uh, to memory loss and increased risk of developing dementia and schizophrenia uh, in men. Uh, the lack of sunlight can actually make them twice as likely to develop heart disease. Uh, lack of sunlight has been linked to effects of seasonal, uh, of seasonal affective disorder, which uh, can relate to mood swings and uh, anxiety and sleep problems and, and, and for some even suicidal thoughts. Um, lack of sunlight can even impair a child's eye development. 
uh, lack of sun exposure also increases the likelihood of, of obesity. And so the point is that it is not good for you and me to live in darkness for long periods of time. And indeed, in places like the, the, the North Pole, uh, they aren't just in total darkness just on the winter solstice, but rather they end up having 163 days of darkness in the year. That is six months without seeing the sun at all. In one, can you even imagine what that would be like to not see the sun in that long a time? You know, for the, for the people of God, they experienced a time of darkness as well. It wasn't necessarily a physical darkness where they, they couldn't see the sun, but it was a spiritual darkness. It was a moral darkness. It was a time in which foreign governments had, had ruled over the Israelites. It was, a, it was a time in which God did not even communicate with His people. There were no prophets around His people to tell His people God's Word and what God wanted them to do. It was as if God had removed His, his presence from them and they're left in complete spiritual darkness. And this spiritual darkness did not just last 163 days. It did not last just six months. Rather, this spiritual darkness would last for 400 years. For comparison, the United States of America has only been a country for 241 years. It had been 146,000 days, roughly, that God last spoke through a prophet who at that, uh, we, we believe that Malachi was the last prophet to speak to God's people on his behalf until an angel appeared. An angel appeared to a priest named Zechariah, and to this priest, the angel announced that through his yet-to-be-born son, John, God would end his silent treatment, and God would never remain silent ever again. John would pave the way as God's prophet to God's ultimate revelation in his son, Jesus Christ. An angel then appeared to a girl named Mary, a young peasant girl. This girl was, was engaged, yet she, she was still a virgin. And the Lord informed her that God wanted her to be the mother of the Messiah. He wanted her to become the mother of God himself. And after a, a bit of questioning... Mary faithfully, willingly, and obediently complied with the Lord's command. Luke tells us in chapter 1, verse 39, it says, In those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill all that he has spoken to her. 
God was no longer silent. And when God is not silent, we cannot be silent either. So therefore, Mary, in her joy, in her praise, she exalts God with what is typically called the magnificat. It's a Latin term for meaning uh, a magnification. We'll get to that here in just a second. It's a poem of praise for what the Lord has done for her personally and how he has helped his, his people, how he has kept his word, and he has never wavered on that word, and how he will save the world through this baby that is being knit together in her womb. And because God approached this teenage girl, you and I no longer have to live in spiritual darkness. And he did, and because he did this, we can sing songs of praise along with Mary and all the other saints. Let's look at the passage and, and see this morning how we can capture the Christmas spirit, not just today, but throughout all of our lives by magnifying the Lord for what he has done by bringing Christ Jesus our Lord, into our fallen world. Look with me in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in the God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant, Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the Mighty One has done great things for me. His name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear Him. He has done a mighty deed with His arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering His mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he spoke to our ancestors. So if we want to take joy and magnify our Lord and Savior today, the first thing that we need to do is rejoice in what God can do in your life. Rejoice in what God can do in your life. You know, there's a lot of good things that that should cause us to rejoice. Think of things like the, the birth of a child, or maybe uh, it was the first time that you had received a job that you were eagerly hoping for and working for. For students, maybe it's one of those things that you had studied all night, or perhaps you didn't cram it. Maybe you've been working for weeks upon this, and you get the test back, and it came out better than you could have even imagined. Maybe you uh, have a friend or a family member that's had some sort of success that you have been praying for. I said just a few minutes ago that we've had some, some reasons to rejoice in our church family here in the last, uh, uh, last couple of weeks with God answering some really big prayers for some folks. 
And that, those are really good things. When it comes to the Lord's work in our life, we have ample reasons to rejoice. And in our text, Mary here guides us into a paradigm by which we ought to take joy. In verse 46, she begins by declaring, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord. Now, this word praises is often translated as magnifies. That's probably a better word to use there. Uh, that's why it's called the magnificat. It's a Latin term meaning to magnify, but not in the way that we often think about magnifying things. When we think about magnifying things, we think of having either a, a magnifying glass or perhaps even a microscope where we are looking at tiny things in order to make them visually look better. Well, we cannot do that with God because He is not a tiny thing that we are trying to bring up, but rather He is a very big God who does big things. And so to magnify the Lord would be more so like looking at God with a telescope. You think about a telescope looking at planets or looking at stars. You're not looking at microscopic things. You're looking at big things and looking at the details and praising God for the wonder of those sort of things. That is the kind of magnification that we are to have. And here, Mary, in, in praising the Lord and magnifying Him, that is what she is doing. She is praising the greatness and the immensity and the goodness of our God. She goes on in verse 47 to say, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So not only does she uh, ascribe his, his greatness and His glory, but she also calls Him her Savior. Another way to recognize Him in that way is to see Him as our Redeemer, our Deliverer. And contextually speaking, Mary may not be viewing this here as uh, God, uh, as the Redeemer of her soul necessarily, although that's, that's sort of part of it, um, but rather she is placing herself into a context of a community that has not heard from God in 400 years. A community that has been subjugated to various governments throughout that time, not the entire time, but for most of it. And she sees God now through this immaculate conception, this, this virginal conception as nothing less than the reversal of her and her people's fortunes. And so what is the reason for all of this? Well, she says in verse 48, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. See, Mary understands something that you and I easily forget. In saying that God looked with favor upon her humble estate on the condition of her servant, she is recognizing that in, in the grand scheme of things, in the big picture, she is very insignificant. More than likely, Mary here was, was probably only about 12 or 13 years old. There's enough biblical evidence to believe that Mary was very low on the socioeconomic scale. She came from a poor family. There's also evidence to believe that she was far from a knockout beauty. In fact, she probably would be what we would consider homely. 
Mary would be what we would consider average. In our culture today, it is hard to emulate such a posture because uh, with that humility because there's so much pressure on us today to make us look better than we are, to display ourselves as something that maybe we are not. There is so much pressure to constantly be on social media, puffing yourself up, making sure that every person in the world knows what you think about every single subject. There's pressure on individuals, especially young people, to look better, to look smarter, to look more successful than everybody else. And we have tons of filters on Instagram to make us look that way. For parents, we can't uh, post any of those things in our lives when our house is messy or when our kids are disobedient. No, we have to only post those pictures that make it look like we have the most well-behaved children the cleanest house all the time. We can't make it look like we have any flaws in families at all. And though Mary can unbiblically be venerated by most Catholics, I think that most Protestants also don't give Mary enough credit for the faith that she had. We would do well to take our cues from her here. Though she was insignificant, it was her insignificance by which God used to change the world. In order to see the greatness of God and to have Him work mightily in our lives and in our church, We must first see our smallness. We must see our insignificance. It doesn't mean that we think less of ourselves, but what it does mean is that we think of ourselves less. Notice the significant change for Mary once God showed favor toward her in verse 48. She says, Surely from now on, All generations will call me blessed. So notice here that God, he he looks upon her her condition, and now Mary's story has reverberated for over 2,000 years. And though your life is, on the grand scheme, insignificant, don't make the mistake of thinking that God cannot do significant things through your life. God can do incredible things through your influence. You can make an eternal difference in your life, even though our lifespan is just a blip on the map of time in a small town in east-central Minnesota that hardly has any worldly significance at all. Being a normal faithful, obedient follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, God can do mighty, mighty things for you. And so when all this comes together, when we view ourselves correctly and when we, when we lean on Jesus, we'll see our lives transformed. And, and uh, it is then that we can sing with Mary in, in verse 49. She says, the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is Holy. 
And so now we can rejoice because God ultimately has done great things for us through this child who would grow to be a man and die for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. But I wonder if you're sitting here thinking, why do we need God to do wonderful things in our life? What, what if life just seems fine and maybe you're not looking for transformation? You have everything you need, all your needs are met, your life seems to be going pretty well. Can't we just have Jesus at Christmas time and then live the rest of uh, uh, the rest of the year the way that we always do? Why do we need Him? Well, that's our second point today. So we need to realize our need for Jesus. We need to realize our need for Jesus. You know, there are a lot of reasons that we have to consider Jesus throughout all of our lives, but Mary really only points to four of them. Uh, in verse 50, Mary says, His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear Him. So the first reason that we, that we need Jesus is that we need mercy. Now, mercy can be loosely defined as, as um, someone of an authoritative position refraining from giving someone something that they deserve, usually in a negative sense. So if someone uh, is going to be punished for something, to show mercy is to withhold that punishment. This is opposite of grace, where grace is giving someone something that they don't deserve. And we need mercy. When we survey our lives, it's not hard to see that we desperately need God's mercy. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it's a very famous verse for all of us, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is that there is something that is hardwired inside every single one of us that drives for autonomy apart from God, that we want to live away from Him, we want to do our own thing in our own way, and in pursuit of that autonomy, we say things that we shouldn't, we do things that we shouldn't, and we even think things that we know isn't right. We hurt other people, and we've experienced hurts as well. From the sin of other people toward us, we live in this fallen world because we have this, 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 uh, this nature about us. And indeed, it is a, a nature. It isn't something that we choose. Rather, this sinful nature is something that we are. We act out of who we are or what we are because of this nature, and we deserve justice from God. Our sin is ultimately a rebellion against His will and His way, and His wrath is rightly upon us. But Mary, in verse 50, tells us that there is a remedy for this, and that is the fear of the Lord. The fear of God is not necessarily being terrified of God and His wrath, although that is part of it, but the other part of it is seeing God. In this glorious way, this magnificence of 
awe and wonder and being taken aback by not just his beauty, but also his might, his omniscience, his all-knowing, his, his, uh, his omnipotence, his all-power, his all-glory. It is chiefly found when we find ourselves rightly deserving his wrath and yet looking to the cross of Christ and trusting in Jesus' work on our behalf as sufficient to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. So we need Jesus because we need the Father's mercy. Secondly, in verse 51, notice that Mary says that he has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. Now, this is getting to the fact that not only do we need mercy, but we have something desperately wrong with our hearts. And what we need is a spiritual transplant. We need God to do a mighty work in our hearts. Mary is looking back here uh, at God's working in history. And throughout the Bible, if you were to read it from Genesis to Revelation, when you would get to the end of 2020 in Revelation, you would see this principle that's spelled out in 1 Peter chapter 5 and throughout other areas of, of Scripture uh, where it, it is said that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Other translations say that God actively opposes the proud. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want God, the maker of heaven and earth, to oppose me for any reason. And when our ancestor Adam had fallen into sin, he passed this, you you could almost call it a sin gene, but there's no gene therapy for this. This is, this is a nature that has affected our behavior. It's affected our words. It's affected our, our minds and our desires. And when Mary refers to our hearts in verse 51, she is referring to what we would rightly call the command center of our being. He's not talking about that organ that is pumping blood throughout your body Every moment of every day, he is talking about what Proverbs calls the wellspring of life. It is where your deepest person lies, who you truly are, what you truly believe is found in the heart. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? One of the worst things that you can do for yourself is to follow your own heart. We live in a culture that continues to tell us, just follow your heart, trust your gut, go with your instincts, follow whatever it is you feel. Baloney, your heart will lead you to live self-sufficiently. It will lead you to only live for yourself. It is desperately wicked. It is desperately deceitful. Rather, our hearts ought to follow God's inclination and what He calls us to. Our hearts left to themselves will always oppose God and and pridefully live for ourselves. Without a new heart of which only God can give us, we are spiritually dead on arrival. We need a radical heart transplant. Verse 52 He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. 
So third, Mary tells us here that we need Jesus because God has standards on who he gets behind and who he fights for. Usually it's the exact opposite of what the world would think that God would get behind. To us, it's the ones that yield the most power. Those political rulers with the most influence. Perhaps those celebrities with the most money behind them. Perhaps it's that community leader that does whatever they do. Whoever has the most money, the best lifestyles, those are the blessed ones. But it's even more simple than that. And and we can even bring it closer to home. Even your average Joes and Janes are seen as mighty in the world's eyes. Well, how is that? These are the ones that take people and things and place those things on the thrones of their life rather than having God, the King of the universe, sitting on the throne of their life. Those who... uh, those ones who live, whose lives revolve around their children or their spouse or a sport or an activity or a sinful vice, or it might even be something that's a very good thing, but that is what we've made our lives about. For such people, God has his own impeachment process, and it looks nothing like the clowns on both sides of the aisle in Washington. There's no debating. There's no delivering. Praise the Lord, there's no lawyers involved. Because God has perfect knowledge of all the facts. There's no gray area with God. God knows what is going on. There's no process. And Mary simply says, He has toppled the mighty from their thrones. Any opposition to God will be dealt with eventually. And If we are sitting on thrones of pride and self-sufficiency and idolatry, this is telling us that God will eventually knock us off that throne. But for those who are like Mary, humble themselves and cling to Christ for dear life because they can do no else. Verse 52 tells us that God will exalt them. So the ones who lift themselves up will be knocked down and the ones who lower themselves will be lifted up. It is a strange yet beautiful reversal of everything that we know in our culture today. But fourth notice also here that Mary says that we need Jesus because of the social consequences. Look at verse 53. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And here again, we see God flip-flopping our expectations. There is an inherent danger in being wealthy. And many of us want wealth. I mean, just go to the gas station, stand in line for a couple minutes, watch how many people buy lottery tickets. We have this insane idea that our lives are going to be better if we have lots and lots of money. 
And throughout the, the, the gospel of Luke, Luke keeps continually coming to this idea of having a strong denunciation for the rich because it is the rich that are often the most stingy, idolatrous, and self-sufficient. But yet, for the hungry, the poor, the disenfranchised, the hurting, God has a heart for them, a deep abiding love. And we need Jesus to force our eyes off of the allure of the world and its stuff and look to Christ. We need Jesus every moment of every day. But how is it that Jesus can be these things? Well, that's what point three is all about, that we need to remember the God who keeps his promises. And I realize that on your, on your outlines, uh, it's a little bit different wording because as I start writing things out, I, it sort of goes in directions that I don't expect. But we need to remember the God who keeps his promises. Uh, you know, we, like I just said a, a little bit ago that we finished up this message series on the life of Abraham and it's only fitting now that we sort of go full circle back to him in verse 54. Mary says that he has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. This is probably, though you wouldn't think it, the most important point in the entire Magnificat. If you uh, were with us at all during the series on Abraham, uh, you uh, would remember that we continually went back to this point again and again and again and again that God gave Abraham this huge promise that nations were going to be blessed, that the entire world was going to be blessed because of Abraham and his descendants. This promise that reverberated throughout all of of history, and it finds its fulfillment now at Christmas in the life of Jesus. And even though this promise was made to Abraham in his life, it was rather looking forward to Abraham's descendant, who in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and his ascension would be a blessing to us all. Why? Because in his life, Jesus lived perfectly, sinlessly. In his death, he bore the wrath that we deserved for our sin. He took the punishment. He took our fine. He took our incarceration on himself. And in his resurrection, he defeated, and he conquered this death and now offers us hope. He offers us redemption. He offers us freedom from this sin. He offers you a brand new life today. Jesus was the answer to all of those promises that God made to Abraham and Mary now in this Magnificat praises God because all of those promises made thousands of years before now find their fulfillment 
in this baby inside her womb. And now that this fulfillment has taken place, the promise to you is that if you trust in Christ, God the Father will save you to the uttermost. Whatever you've done, whatever you've said, whatever regrets you have, however someone else has hurt you, it is all forgiven and redeemed in Christ. See, Christmas is not just about a baby being born. It is about salvation being realized. God offers you this promise at Christmas and the next day after that and the next day after that. And every day, he continually offers you this grace. And he has shown time and time again that he keeps his promises. Trust in Jesus. And it will not only transform you at Christmas, but it will transform your entire life. At this time of year, we might only get eight and a half hours of sunlight. Helsinki, maybe for six in the North Pole, none. But in Christ Jesus, our lives can be illuminated for eternity because of Jesus' work on our behalf. This Christmas, maybe even this very day, will you trust in Jesus, maybe for the first time, or will you return to Him for your eternal life, light, and salvation? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for this message here. We thank you for Mary. Lord, we thank you for her humble posture. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be humble as well. Lord, I pray that you would not let us get puffed up in ourselves, seeing our greatness, but rather that we would see your greatness for sending your son, Jesus Christ, in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Lord, we're grateful. Father, I pray for anyone here that may not have uh, known Christ before, that right now, Lord, they would be trusting in you, that they would be saying, Father, forgive me of my sin. I trust in Christ for my redemption. I trust that his life and death and resurrection is sufficient to cover all of those things. Father, I pray for those who have been running from you, that this season would be a time in which they would find their hope and that they would finally stop here at the feet of Jesus. Lord, would you do that work in the lives of those here today and in the life of our church? And it is in Jesus' name and authority that I ask this. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing a song of